E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Scott Gerber on the show today of Martin Scott Wines. Hey, Scott. Good morning. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. You've had a long career in the wine business. You have your own very, very successful distribution company in New York and New Jersey. How did you get here? What was and Connecticut? Oh, and I didn't know that. Absolutely. Well, how did you start uh, your own show? And before that, how did you get involved in the wine business? First, let me say thank you for having me today. It's great I'm, to have you. Uh, I'm honored and I'm humbled to be here. And uh, when you take a look at the people that you've had on your shows, um, truly, truly appreciative of the opportunity. So thank you. Well, it's, it's, I, I know that you have a lot of perspective to share. Uh, how, I mean, what was the wine business like when you first got into it? Well, it goes back a long time. I started in 1975. I came out of the University of Connecticut, and um, I graduated with a degree in business, and uh, I worked my way through school as a waiter. I worked Friday, Saturday, Sundays, and uh, I grew up in, in the Hartford area and was recruited by insurance companies to- sure. uh, because that's the insurance capital. Yeah, Hartford the world. Life, Hartford, right? Exactly. And I really didn't want to do that. I didn't want to sell insurance. It just did, wasn't attractive to me. So I said to You're myself- You're always waiting for someone to die. Exactly, God, exactly. She so died I, I said to, uh, I was thinking about it, and I said, well, I, I worked for a number of years in the uh, restaurant business, and I uh, maybe that would be a fit. So uh, I was recruited by a, a regional steakhouse um, and became a manager. And uh, uh, I did that for a number of months, and uh, the hours were very long and very late. And uh, as part of my job, I used to buy wine and spirits. Oh, okay. In the before the uh, wine really became what it is today, and uh, I said to myself, when the salespeople would come in, I said, you know what, I can do that. I think so. Uh, I started to knock on some doors of some of the suppliers that uh, I did business with. And uh, at the time I was 23 years old and truly no one wanted to talk to me. And uh, after two or three interviews, I had an interview that lasted uh, about 30 seconds and I'm back out on the street outside of the building. And I said to myself, uh, let me let me go back in and let me approach the, the general manager one more time. And I came up with a counter proposal where I said, uh, if you allow me to work with you for a month, you don't have to pay me. And if you like the caliber and the, the style of my work, then we can talk about me working here on a full-time basis. And he said, wait right here. And uh, he had me talk to the owner of the company. It was in Connecticut at the time, the distribution company. And uh, I told my story to the owner. And uh, within, uh, within a half an hour, I had a job. And uh, they assigned me all the accounts that nobody else wanted throughout That was nice of them. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I started early, worked late, and I, I really loved it. I really took to it well. And it was in the early days. This was in 1975. What do you think their hesitation was in hiring you at that time? Like, why wouldn't they say, here's a smart young man. Well, let's hire him right away. Why do they put you to the street? Well, I don't know if I impressed them as a smart young man, but I said, you know, they, they, I think the risk factor was the fact that they were a union house and that if they hired me, a young 23-year-old uh, uh, man may not be the fit. I, I had little or no experience at the time. I had a lot of desire and energy and interest in, in getting into it. And in 1975, wine wasn't what it is today. And I think the fact that I gave them an out by saying that I truly would 
uh, sign a document that uh, within a month I'd leave and you didn't have to pay me. Yeah. Uh, gave them an open door to to hire me. And they, they did pay me, obviously. And uh, they had me stay on. They gave me more accounts as I uh, continued to work there. And uh, they... I really enjoyed the experience. So really what good. company was that? That was uh, the Gallo Wine Merchants. It was a Gallo distributor out of New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, Do you and feel like they kind of like set the stage in a lot of way for the distribution in America? Like actual moving of bottles throughout the country? At the time, I did not have an awareness of, of how good their training program was. Uh, and how good the experience would be in terms of fundamentals of selling and understanding the the, the elements of professional selling, because they're known for that. Like right. that's the sales thing is their right. forte. Yeah, it was it was luck to a large degree. But I worked for the distribution company for a couple of years, and they they liked what I did. They liked the results that I generated, and they uh, they brought me to California, which was really their base, City of Commerce to be a salesperson. I, I really, it's the first time that I was ever in California. And uh, I lived in a little tiny studio. I don't think it was 200 square feet. And all I did was work. I, and they had, every week, they would uh, have a training program on Friday afternoons. And you'd come in and you'd, you'd sit for eight hours of training. And during the week, they had you call on accounts. So what was the training session like? Like, you know, Second, second prize is you're fired. Like, I mean, what did they tell you? Because they're known for, you know, like, like make it happen or die. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it was it was, it was very serious. They had a very uh, a very high standard in terms of the recruit program. I kind of came in the back door. Yeah. You know, you heard the story of how I knocked on the door, but uh, they would recruit out of colleges and they would look for a certain caliber of, uh, of student and individual. They would hire at that time, they, would, they had a big push on MBAs oh, okay. at the time. And uh, they had a very high success ratio. If you, at least for the first number of years that you were with Gallo, you know, uh, I was with them for about five years. Yeah. And it was, it was a terrific experience. It was, uh, you think they looked at it as like a business, not as a romance. Like they, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was education and it was street experience and there were standards of, uh, a performance that they expected and, uh, you had to rise to it, but they, they had a, uh, they had a, a very good awareness of whether or not the people that they recruited into the program would succeed or not. You didn't hear about many people failing in the in the early days. So. so guys who we might hear about now, like Mel Dick and stuff, were they around back then? Did you see them around the they, hallways? They were before uh, my my experience. <clears throat> yeah. But uh, people like George Frank and uh, uh, others were there. But Mel definitely went through the school, no question about it. So, so uh, what were some of the things you picked up during that period of time in terms of, like, what was your experience knocking on doors, cold calling retailers and restaurants. Yeah, as I said, it was my first experience in California, so I really knew no one there. But you'd uh, work with uh, uh, regional and general managers early on, and within a few days, they'd let you on your own. Yeah. And uh, I got up early. I worked late. You followed the elements of uh, the, the training that they gave you. It was basically the selling skills of approach, body, close. Oh, okay, okay. <clears throat> and... Um, it was it was good. You'd go in at the time and you'd inventory uh, at retail what the uh, retailers had in stock, and you'd come to the retailer with a proposed order. And it was a, certainly a much smaller book than the type of book that I represent today. And, and Which wine is was huge. at a different level, and it was a different point in the evolution of fine wine. At what the was time. a normal like uh, consumer buying at, at 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 a restaurant at that time? They were buying Hardy Burgundy and Chablis, and there were proprietary brands like Spignata. It's what my uh, dad drank. Right. He did. Yeah. But it was it was great a great foundation for uh, uh, where wine was going. And uh, getting into the wine business in 1975, uh, you didn't have the vision that it would be what it is today. Uh-huh. So. And what was the next thing that happened along your, your career path? So I worked there uh, in total for uh, about five years. Okay. I, uh, they brought me back to uh, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. I was the only person... Uh, employee and I did everything from ordering rail cars worth of wine to rail going, cars rail cars wow. to going out it was a state controlled uh, county Montgomery County in Maryland oh okay and I would go out and I would uh, sell what I ordered 
And I'd order four or five containers at a time and then just develop programs. And at the time, they they had set programs, but I would come up with what I thought were creative thoughts in terms of marketing the wine on a local basis, and they were receptive to it. They let me do it. You had to follow a certain standard of what they wanted. And on my own, I, I tried to uh, be a little more creative and innovative in terms of presenting wine to the consumer. And I also, you know, I've been talking mostly retail up to now, but I got into uh, selling restaurants at the time. And once again, not of the uh, caliber and evolution of what wine is to restaurants today. It was, a, it was a whole different world at that point. How many other salesmen for your company were in Maryland at that time? One person. Just me. It was you. It was you ran me. the state it was by me. yourself. I did, I did everything from ordering to pricing to selling. And I did that uh, for about a year. And then I was recruited by Hubline. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, to become a sales trainer and recruiter for about a uh, half the country. Was that uh, about the time that they were like purchasing BV and stuff? Uh, they already owned BV at the time. But I was responsible for uh, traveling the country and going to different regions and conducting uh, sales training seminars and, and product knowledge information at the time. And I did that for about a year and a half, and I realized that I really missed the selling uh, experience. So actually. you were like teaching selling, but you weren't hitting the streets so much. Exactly, exactly. And I miss the action. I miss the approach. I miss the close. I miss interacting with real customers and seeing the success that a sell-through of a product wine would have uh, to the customer. And uh, at the time, Coca-Cola was in the, the wine business. Yeah, like Sterling and stuff. Exactly. Sterling and, and Taylor California Cellars and Taylor New York. And I was recruited <clears throat> by a gentleman by the name of Mike Cheek. Okay. And uh, they brought me uh, into, uh, into selling again. And I did that for a number of years. And then uh, from there, uh, Seagram's bought the wine division. Oh, that's right. Uh, and uh, at the time, they they promised that there would be no changes, but ultimately there were changes, and I decided to— How long uh, did that take? Uh, like, very, about a year. Oh, yeah, okay. Pretty, I think you're going to be like, two days later? <laughs> no, it, <laughs> like, it, it happened pretty quickly, quite frankly. Yeah. But uh, And at that point, I was recruited by Frederick Wildman. Oh, Okay. And I, uh, I was recruited by a gentleman by the name of Terrence Clancy. He has since passed, but he was a brilliant, brilliant man. I think he, uh, he knew Mel Dick, and he knew a lot of people in the early days at, uh, at Gallo. And he was working for Hiram Walker, who owned Frederick Wildman at the time. And I flew out to uh, San Francisco, where he was based, and uh, we had an interview. And he said, Scott, I've got three jobs. Which, would, which one would you like? And one of them was to run the wholesale division of Frederick Wildman in New York at the time. Uh, they owned a townhouse on 69th Street in Manhattan. And I said, uh, since I lived in New York, I said, uh, if you give me the opportunity, I'd love to, to pursue that. And they had a, uh, a national wholesale division, and they had a New York uh, distribution company. And they gave me the job of running the New York uh, distribution segment. How many the distributors business. were there in New York at that time? There were not a lot. Because now there's like 60 or something. Yeah, there are quite a few. There were a number of the big liquor companies were involved. Winebow was in business at the time. Uh, but not a lot of others, quite frankly. So like 10 or less? I'd say in terms of the, the, the better fine wine business, it was a, probably 10 or less. It was really in the early stages. And, and that was in 1984. Did you guys see the shift happening? Like that that thing that people talk about, like people were buying less, but they were buying higher price ticket items? What happened, doors started to really open up. Obviously, the fine burgundies were around for many years, but you really saw them start to, to grow in popularity. California uh, really came on the scene in a big way. Uh, Italy as well. Uh, it was a little bit before Australia started to gain popularity. Uh, South Africa really wasn't on the scene. Uh, there were New York wines were being produced, but it really started as a groundswell right in the early 80s where wine really became popular. And once again, I think it was, uh, to a large degree, it was, it was luck and a, a good hunch that I had to move in the direction of fine wine. I had it in my mind that I thought it would evolve, and I was very lucky that I guessed right in 1984, because not only did I sense that uh, fine wine would grow in terms of popularity and exposure, but that uh, I was able to uh, fortunately align myself with really a terrific company at the time. What was in the book at that time? Uh, 
Laflev was there. I've heard of them. Uh, right. <laughs> the main dealer, Romani Conti. I've heard of that uh, too. Chateau Matalina was there. Uh, Dujak. You know, it was really a very, very uh, good book. And at the time, uh, uh, when I first got hired, um, for some reason, I had uh, six salespeople. And when I came on board, a number of the salespeople decided to go in different directions and pursue uh, academic directions. I don't think it was me, but uh, very quickly, about three or four of the salespeople that were there when, when I came on board decided to to pursue other avenues in their life. So I had to put together a new sales force. And at the time, uh, Louis Latour was a major brand yeah. at Frederick Wildman. And within a very short time of me joining on with Frederick Wildman, uh, we lost uh, the brand. Oh, not, okay. not due to anything that I did. I think it was leading up to that point. And it was a large percentage of the volume as well as the profit to the company. So uh, my, my boss at the time, uh, Terrence, and Martin Gold was there at the time as well. So no, Scott, you're your you, partner now, Martin Correct. Gold. He said, uh, you know, they both said, Scott, you've got to put this company back together. Yeah. You know, losing both salespeople as well as a major brand within the portfolio was a real hit. And it seems those, like those two business. things are often related. Like people are like, oh, we don't have that major brand that's a big part of my, my sales uh, numbers every month. So how am I going to make my money? How am I going to make my cut if I'm a salesman? Right. So uh, at, at the time I got on an airplane, I went to California was the most logical place to go early on. And uh, we were fortunate, not only myself, but the, the team of other people that I was working with at the time, we put together a proposal to bring uh, Wilson Daniels. Oh, to, okay. And that was major. That was major. As I said, at the time, it was Domain de la Romani Conti, La Fleve, and, and other brands that were really terrific. And uh, um, What was the get? name recognition for DRC back then? I mean, was it selling for the, the thousands of dollars that sells for now? People that certainly knew Great Burgundies, knew yeah. Domain de la Romani Conti. So, uh, but certainly over the course of years, as the economy grew and the awareness of great wine and, and new people got into purchasing wine, it certainly rose not only in popularity, but in, uh, in, in demand. It was always in demand, always in demand. Uh, no matter what the economy uh, uh, was, Domain del Romani Conti and, and brands like La Fleve were always uh, a draw to the book. And it was very good. You know, when, you, <clears throat> when the book uh, started to come apart and the people left at Frederick Wildman, the fact that I was, uh, that we were able to attract and sign on a group of brands like that it helped attract new, vibrant salespeople. What was going on with Wilson Daniels back then? Uh, it was Wynn Wilson and Jack Daniels at the time, and they were uh, they were in business for a number of years. At that point, they were uh, they were young, they were charismatic, and they were uh, really quality oriented. They knew where the gems of wine were throughout the world, and they pursued the best of the best, and that was really their calling card to assemble a supreme portfolio of the top quality producers in, uh, in any region. And they were very successful. They were very enthusiastic. They had great passion for wine. They had knowledge of wine. They were able to forge relationships that were long lasting. And uh, it, was, it, was just, they were, they were a, it was just so refreshing in terms of bringing on a supplier with those types of brands and it really helped ignite uh, what I was doing at the time at uh, Fred Frederick Wildman. So that's the European side, but then you also signed Montalena around the same time. Seems like that's been a long right. relationship. That for came you. through uh, through uh, another group of uh, a marketing company at the time, and it was uh, Jim Barrett. Yeah, sure. Was there, and uh, at the time, uh, Bo Barra was was just just starting to come on, and once again, you know, you you know about the uh, I'm sure the uh, the, the French tasting that really put them on the map when Jim uh, packed his bags and, and, and took his wine to Paris. And uh, that really put them on the map. That happened in 76. So it was like Stag's Leap and Montalena and Gergich made it yeah. big names uh, well, out of that. Well, Gergich was a, a winemaker. Yeah. Right? As a matter of fact, I, just, uh, I was the only distributor person invited to uh, the 40th reunion of Chateau Montalina 
where Jim Barrett assembled all the past and present employees that ever worked for uh, Chateau Montalina. Wow. And it uh, was one of the, it was the first time in many years that Jim reunited his relationship with Mike Gergich. Oh, okay. And uh, I have pictures of it. Uh, and it was just such a piece of wine history that I was privileged to, to witness as, as one of their uh, distributors and the only distributor in, in America. So I was very, very fortunate to, to witness that. Well, you distribute them on your own now. So uh, how did it change that you went from Wildman to your own company? Well, as I said, in, I went to Wildman in 1984. I was, I was recruited by Martin Gold, uh, now my partner, and I worked there until 1989. Uh, he did a lot of duty-free uh, business at the time. So shortly after I hired him, he hired me rather, uh, he went off to work on duty-free and then he came back as- Selling he, at airports. Yeah, throughout the world. Yeah. yeah. And then he came back to Frederick Wildman uh, in, the, uh, in the late 80s as president. And by the way, he started out as a salesperson too. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but he was in another industry in, in fine menswear and he had a passion for it's wine. He's a sharp dresser. Yeah. I he, find him. Yeah. He had a passion for wine and he knocked on the door. And I think similar to my story, he was not originally hired. I don't know if he offered to work for free like I did, but he became a salesman, a very successful one. And uh, as I said, he grew to become president of Frederick Wildman. And during the period of time that he worked for them, he hired me and we worked uh, uh, together for a number of years. And then in 1989, the end of 89, some things were happening and, and uh, Frederick Wildman was in the process of being sold and Marty decided that he was gonna move on. And uh, he informed me of that and I came to work one day and I said, uh, Marty, I, uh, I don't know what you're doing or where you're going, but uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we'd be a good team together. Yeah. So I went home and he really didn't think uh, much of maybe my proposal at the time, but I went home that night uh, and I received a couple of calls. I received one from Jim Barrett. I received one from Wynn Wilson, and this was after Marty notified uh, the suppliers that he was moving on. And uh, the suppliers reached out to me. I didn't reach out to them. And they said, Scott, uh, both Jim Barrett and Wynn Wilson said, Wherever you and Marty go, we re really love to follow you and come with you. So I went to work uh, the next day and I said, Marty, uh, I got a couple of calls last night, you know? And uh, he, uh, these people, you know, maybe at some point down the road would, would love to consider doing business with us. Uh, he said, uh, Scott, I received the same calls, but quite frankly, we, uh, we don't have any brands. We don't have any money. We don't have any business plan, you know, and- Should uh, be easy then. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I was young at the time. I think I was 36 years old and uh, uh, I had great aspirations and visions, but uh, didn't have the more conservative viewpoint and, and perspective that Marty did with more years of experience. And uh, I went home probably a little depressed. And then uh, after Marty left, you know, uh, uh, we, we talked a little bit and uh, he put together a business plan and he put together uh, uh, some strategy to, to get into business. And then um, it all evolved. And in time, brands followed us after we both left and started in business. And we were very, very fortunate. We started in business with Wilson Daniels, who pursued us after we both left, and with Jim Barrett and a number of others. And uh, to this day, we still represent those properties after 23 years of business. And we're very, very fortunate. I mean, to turn the key and start a wine wholesale business and in, in initially it was only New York uh, with brands like Domaine uh, Romani, Del Romani Conti and with Lefleve and Chateau Montalina and the rest of the Wilson Daniels book. It just, it's, it's a rare opportunity. So we were very, very fortunate to, to do that. And we attracted uh, a lot of attention by the trade early on and we were very, very conservative. The book was relatively small back then, and uh, but we were very, very cautious in, in terms of assembling the portfolio. Our uh, cornerstone and our commitment to getting into the wine business was based on quality. And when you're new as a distribution company, some lesser brands tend to come to you. They see open doors as an opportunity. 
but uh, both Marty and I agreed that if it, if it wasn't quality, it wasn't going to be part of the Martin Scott book. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we waited uh, we waited almost twenty three years, twenty two years to really sign on a, a, a Chablis producer, because although we tasted Chablis of, of great quality, we didn't find one till twenty two, twenty three years into our evolution. So did you kind of build the book in the wake of the financial downturn in the stock market, kind of 89-ish, Black yeah, it's a, Monday? It's an interesting question. When Marty and I both uh, decided to leave, it was uh, it was at the end of 1989. And uh, at the time, I had a, a very good job at Frederick Wildman. And I think shortly in, in the end of the summer of 1989, we hit uh, the wall in terms of the economic situation. And uh, I said to myself, oh my God, what did I do? And what that did is it really made me work smarter and harder, about all of us, because during a tef- tough economic time, it's that much more difficult to, to start a business. But every morning I'd get up, I'd look in the mirror, I saw my boss. So I got out early, you know, I tried to be more creative, more innovative. Uh, consistent in terms of what we were doing. And we, we were really focused because we could not afford to make mistakes based on the way the economy was. And we turned the key. We started doing business as Martin Scott Wines on January 2nd, 1990. And uh, it was a very exciting time. It was a tough time. And, uh, you know, the thought was when we, before we started the business that uh, we'd have great brands, we'd go out there and that uh, lots of people would throw us orders. Yeah. That's not the way the wine business is. How I've long heard, did it take for like a customer base to really grow? Well, I'll tell you an interesting story that really spurred me on, and I'll, I'll answer your question. Uh, I think the first day that I was in business, we had just a handful of salespeople. We probably had four or five salespeople, and I was on the street as well selling. And I called on Spark Steakhouse, who was a, a good customer. Yeah, he used to buy a lot of wine. Exactly. Pat Seda, uh, who's unfortunately passed away a number of years ago, would call me late at night and he'd order 25 cases of different wines and he'd put them away uh, for a number of years until he felt they were right to drink and he charged reasonable prices. So I figure he'd be a good a good candidate to make one of my first calls to. So uh, late in the afternoon, I, I went and called on him and all day long, I didn't get one order. And I called on Pat for sure. I said, let me save the best for last, that I'll get an order with Pat at Sparks. So I walked in. He was in the far corner of the restaurant. And uh, he welcomed me in. I sat at the table. I went through my por- our portfolio with him. He turned it. He said, it's got good luck. And uh, he didn't give me an order. And I kept waiting for the order. Yeah, he gave you the you verbal. Know? Hey, good job, man. Exactly. I kept waiting for the order. I asked for the order probably three times. And I figured, well, let me let it go. As I got up and packed my bags and walked to the door, just as I was about to step out onto the street, he called me back to the table. And he said, let me take another look at that. And he went through the book. And I think he gave me about a 25 or 30 case order. And my adrenaline started to race through my veins. And I said, you know what? This is what it's all about. You bring fine wine to to great restaurants and retailers, and they'll recognize it. And hopefully they'll They'll give you an order if you solicit a property properly. So he gave me a great order. Uh, he asked me to come back the following week. And I walked outside. I was meeting friends that night. And we were going to go downtown. And I went downtown. And I went to the Battery Park area. And I looked out to the Statue of Liberty because I was early to meet my friends for dinner. And I said, we can make it in America. <laughs> okay? And the adrenaline was still racing in my in my bones and my veins. And uh, I said, we've got a small book, but it's great quality. I've got a great partner. We've got great customers in New York. And, and we were only in business in New York at the time. And uh, from that point on, I'll always remember the rest of my life that Pat Seda uh, from Spark Steakhouse gave me my first order. And it was really the stimulus to continue to call on the great stores and great restaurants that we're fortunate to have in New York and present them and bring them. We really, I felt that we really had a responsibility because the suppliers gave us that responsibility to present in a proper way with knowledge uh, to the best restaurants and best stores in New York and bring their product to market. So, and I I took that responsibility very seriously and uh, that's what we did. And and fortunately we've, we've been able to do it and do it well and, earn the respect of the buyers in New York. And then in, uh, 
in the early 1990s, um, we decided to expand into uh, New Jersey in a serious way. We bought another company and, uh, and hooked up. But prior to that, before that, we, we bought a company called Atlantic and it had uh, the Southcourt portfolio. And it was able to bring some volume and some quality. Penfolds was, was part of that portfolio. Uh, as well as a number of other brands, Lindemans. And it really gave us some volume importance to a lot of the buyers in New York. And that was in the, that was in the uh, early 90s. Do you feel like that kind of volume helped you break into the retail side for Martin Scott? Uh, absolutely. In, 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 a, in a bigger way, it gave us credibility and it allowed us to, to bring volume to the marketplace. And that happened in the early 90s. I think it was 92. And then in... Uh, uh, in 2001, right after, uh, unfortunately, the, the World Trade Center tragedy, uh, we bought another company, uh, Greenfield Wine Company, that had brands like Pride and Cartilage and Brown and, and Brown Vineyards and, and a number of others. Paloma was in the property, in the uh, portfolio. And Paloma so, was huge at, at that right. moment. It was like on the cover of The Spectator around then. Exactly. And so at that time, we were able to bring uh, more quality, high-end products, mostly California at the time, to a bigger volume book. The company had grown in terms of number of salespeople, and uh, it was it was really great. Uh, unfortunately, again, it was at a tough economic time, and uh, right after the World Trade Center, we 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 closed on the the property within days, and then we committed ourselves to uh, to do charitable things in. Southern Manhattan to help uh, do what we could to help rebuild the, the the business that was there at the time that unfortunately was impacted so severely. Have you seen any parallels between that kind of moment and what we just saw with the hurricane? Uh, y- yes, but without the loss of life, yeah. fortunately. Um, over the years, uh, we have done different programs. When Chile had the earthquake, we came up with a program with Erasmus where they donated all their profit to a fund to help Chile get back on their feet. And then right after uh, Sandy, I went into uh, Marty. And I said, Marty, we've done so many charitable things to help Mexico, to help Chile, to help other uh, wine growing areas uh, get back on their feet. Uh, we were just hit with such a tragedy with Sandy. I really felt that we needed to do something to, to help. And I said to him, I presented Marty uh, a concept where we would approach our two New York uh, wineries, Redtail Ridge and Pellegrini, and I would solicit them to give up all their profit. I would ask our trucker and our warehouse to give up their profit, and I would ask our salespeople to work on no commission as well as our own company to to surrender all our profit. So we came up with donating, uh, being able to donate $50 a case on one skew from uh, Redtail Ridge, it was a semi-dry Riesling, and Cabernet Franc from Pellegrini to generate $50 a case for the Sandy Red Cross relief effort. And uh, we had probably 40, 50 cases in stock the first day we decided to do this. And uh, I thought it would take uh, a while to, to move that kind of volume. I think we sold it out in two hours. And then we've, uh, we've ordered hundreds of cases since. You know, everybody's giving up their profit. And it's, once again, something that we feel very good about doing that's giving back to the community in the aftermath of Sandy. So, I mean, you were kind of playing with some good cards in the 90s, you know, dealing with California at a time that it was really uh, popular, both critically and at the consumer level and highly allocated. And then uh, in this last decade that we just saw uh, pass, you you did a lot of work, as you always have with Burgundy, and that's become huge in terms of people desiring more wine than is actually available. And again, uh, maybe moving to some allocated situations. Uh, what's that been like? And how do you determine who gets the DRC and who doesn't? Well, uh, Marty, uh, even at the days of Frederick Wildman, he, his passion and the foundation, the cornerstone of his love of wine is, is really centered in France. So he's really a Bur- Burgundian. Because uh, it's a in, good book. Absolutely. I mean, Bachelet so, and Lefleve and So early on, you know, he goes over at least once, if not twice a year. And we, in, in Marty's uh, effort, have forged wonderful relationships with family-owned estates, predominantly. 
And uh, it's been many, many years. And we've, we follow the vintage. We go over, he goes over every year with uh, a number of our, our people. We have a brand manager, David Kanicki, who's very well respected in the marketplace. And since our inception, consistently, every single year, he goes to Burgundy, we go into the cellars, we taste the new vintage, we taste some past vintages. And uh, he really, with uh, a number of our people, every year he goes over, is able to wrap his mind around the vintage as well as our people's because that's a responsibility. Not only do we want to continue to forge relationships with the uh, with the winery owners, it's important for us to understand the vintage to carry the message to the marketplace. You know, to do it once every couple of years and just make a, uh, a social exercise out of it is not what his intention is. His intention and our intention is to do just what I said, bring the knowledge to the knowledgeable buyers. Because the buyers that are buying wine today are far different than they were a number of decades ago. They want to know what we are able to learn and gather on the trip. You are a buyer yourself. You know that's important to you. You know, if you if you come in and you don't have the knowledge of what you're presenting for uh, for the day, uh, you're you're quickly dismissed by a knowledgeable buyer, and uh, we take knowledge. We take these trips to the uh, wine areas very seriously. Uh, I go to California every year and have since the inception. I'll be going in January. We visit upwards to uh, um, 40, 45 wineries in a 10-day period of time. We do business reviews, and once again, with inside a couple of days, you get your hands on the pulse of what's happening with the vintage what's happening in Napa, what's happening in Sonoma, what's happening in the South. And uh, once again, it's an important element in terms of understanding what our responsibility is, both to the winery owners and, and growing the business in the marketplace. But seriously, the DRC letters go out, like how many cases this restaurant gets, how many cases that restaurant gets, does that mean that you just have to stop answering your phone for a week and pull down the shades and pretend you're not mm. in the office? I mean, how many people call you up and like, hey, mm. any chance you could hook me with an extra two bottles? Let me, let me address how that's done because I really passed by that question. It's done over the course of years. What we try to do is be very responsible to the customers who support the, uh, the winery year in and year out. And obviously you can't give all the wine to one customer. You, you try to spread it out in a fair fashion. And uh, David Kanicki, with the help of Wilson Daniels, really goes through this exercise. And it's changed within the last couple of years to the point where uh, we have to file a plan with what we call our highly allocated wines. And uh, there are not that many now as there were maybe a number of years ago. So you have to present to the state that it is, it, it's fair. And that you have to present to the on, state, it's the New York on, state. You have to file a plan on those types of wines in terms of uh, how you sell the wine and who you sell the wine to. I which, didn't know that. Yeah, we do it with people like uh, from California, Sea Smoke, which we're fortunate yeah, sure. to represent, and a number of other uh, Burgundies and uh, Pride Vineyards. And uh, you have to show them that you don't play favorites and that it's based on history and it's based on fairness in terms of uh, the support of the brand. So the SLA wants to know that you're not just basically giving someone a competitive market advantage by giving them something that's very highly in demand, like at the retail or restaurant. Yeah, not, not on every single uh, 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 wine that is, is limited, but on the really, really limited wines, that's true. And so let me ask you, here we are in what a lot of people find to be financially tough times, kind of a, you know, in a way, a recalling 2001 or maybe 89. What would you say to a young guy who's hitting the street today as a salesman? I mean, what what's important if they want to look for the long term? There are a number of things. I mentioned before the importance of knowledge. Uh, Psalms, depending on the type of restaurant, and you were, you were one yourself, uh, in terms of uh, your experience, if you had a salesperson call on you and they were really not well-versed in terms of Southern Italy and the brands that were important to Southern Italy, which would be brands that would be important to you, you were dismissed. So number one is knowledge. Uh, a salesperson not only has to understand their own book, they have to understand the competitive brands that are out there. They have to understand the needs of a marketplace. They have to be a good listener. You know, when I go out and I work with salespeople, because I do that a lot, is 
I'll, I'll take a, a newer salesperson and I'll hold back. Sometimes I'll even wait outside the store or restaurant, but I'll say, come here, come take a look and we'll look through the window and we'll see how the com competition is presenting. And the salesperson has to be prepared. So one is knowledge, two is preparation. Three is be a good listener, deliver what the buyer wants. Just because I or uh, the company wants to or needs to sell certain things, you can't really lead with that. You need to lead with what the buyers are looking for. So I say to my salespeople all the time, uh, if, you, if you ask the right questions and you're a good listener and you make note of what the buyer might be looking for on your next call, your success ratio of making placements and securing wine by the glass and getting four placements and expanding the depth of your distribution into a retail outlet, your percentage will be so much higher if you just follow what I'm saying. And then follow up. You know, when uh, in the early days, when I first started out as a salesperson back in 1975 in Connecticut, uh, I would go to meetings. Uh, I guess it was once a month at that time. And customers would call me. The meetings were on Friday in many parts of Connecticut. They wouldn't deliver on Friday. So I would get, I would see the need for uh, delivering wine on Friday to certain accounts. So I went to my manager and I said, listen, after the meeting, can you uh, pull some cases and bill them out to this particular customer and I'll deliver them Friday night. And at the time I was driving a 1975 Camaro. I can tell you a 1975 Camaro will hold 22 cases of wine. <laughs> okay. And I would deliver the wine until 9, 10 o'clock at night. And uh, I did it on a consistent basis, but I became important to the accounts. To this day, um, you know, I make deliveries at night. My car is, is licensed, has a license permit to really? deliver wine. And if a, uh, if a customer is looking for something and I'm able to put my hands on it and make a delivery, um, I'll do that. Because so many times it's like, oh, damn, I'm going into the weekend. I don't have enough for my glass pour. And they know that you can trust you to... To make the yeah, our warehouses in New Jersey, all our wine temperature controlled, but oftentimes I'll have specifically uh, my New York City salespeople, occasionally my Long Island people, because I live on Long Island, will say, "Scott, can you help me out?" You know, I know uh, just this past week, one of my salespeople said a new restaurant was opening up on 21st Street, and they said that the restaurant tour was looking for some wooden empty boxes. Can yeah, you deliver them. Yeah. So I walked in at nine o'clock with a dozen empty boxes and they had a private party going on, but the buyer welcomed me with open arms and he sent someone out. He said, thank you so much for, for doing this. And uh, in addition to the things that I mentioned that are important for a salesperson to, to do and to, to say, it's service. If a salesperson makes a commitment to do something, whether it's waitstaff training or it's uh, in-store tasting, they need to show up. They need to do it. You know, and I tell my salespeople, I hope I'm not giving away any trade secrets. Yeah, there, yeah. Way, is uh, all the time I said, listen, I'm willing to start early and work late. If you're going to be successful, I need you to be on my team and do the same. So how has the market in New York shifted for California over, say, 20, 23 years? What's, what's been the, the ups, downs, the changes? Clearly, over the course of years, the foundation of sales and distribution of California was early on in the notable bigger brands, uh, whether it was Sterling or, or uh, Rutherford Hill or other brands. But the, the, the key thing that has happened over the, the 23 years is that so many wineries uh, have gotten into business. You know, people, uh, a lot of people who are not in the wine business but have a passion for wine say, well, I think I'm going to get into the wine business. Well, I think if they don't do it right, they quickly learn how to make a small fortune in the wine business. You start with a big fortune, okay? So yeah, you have to buy, uh, you have to invest or buy fruit from the, the right land. It's got to be the right terroir. Uh, you know, and I think you really have to have the right person putting it together because just uh, obtaining or growing grapefruit does not give you a license to a highly scored wine or a highly appreciated wine. Uh, I also think I mentioned earlier that uh, uh, that people have evolved to wanting to drink wine uh, uh, earlier in its life. And certainly in a city like New York or, or Northern Jersey or Fairfield County, uh, spaces of a premium. So uh, restaurant tours don't 
are not really, all of them are not like Pat Seta was that hold on to wine for many years. You know, they want to be able to buy current release. And most distributors, us included, you know, we have a number of older vintages, but in most cases, you sell a current vintage. So when someone goes to a restaurant and they're spending good money to, to have great food, they want to drink a wine that uh, that is ready to drink now. So I'd say a couple of things. Number one, in answer your question, one, there's so many more people in terms of coming on the scene, a lot of smaller producers. Uh, some of the larger producers made a commitment to do single vineyards. We represent uh, Cavera over in Sonoma, and I met with them this past week, and they told me uh, they have a, a number of lots that are very small productions. They, uh, in their portfolio, Greg LaFollette, who's a great winemaker. Yeah, sure. Right. He was the, the founder, founding uh, managing partner of Flowers, and he has his own brand now, like. LaFollette. And uh, they presented to me, they said, Scott, you know, Greg's making four or five different uh, lots of 100 cases or less, nationally 100 cases or less. That means maybe we get 10 or 15 cases that'll come to New York. So uh, we're able to order those, and those create some excitement for uh, a young retail buyer or a young restaurateur who's looking to have something different. Is the idea of scarcity become more and more important in the market? On certain brands, uh -huh. sure, but, but I would say in general, the vast majority of our portfolio and others have to be sold. No one's really making bad wine today. Yeah. Okay. With the technology that's on the uh, on the forefront, it's some wines taste better than others. I, I was presented a wine yesterday by a prospective supplier who sent me an array of eight different varietals that I had to get back to him last night and say the wines didn't have weight in terms of fruit. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what buyers look for. That's what because buyers look for what consumers want. Yeah. And I think they want balanced fruit. They don't want it to be overblown in terms of alcohol. They want uh, approachable tannins. And I think that's that's really what we look for, and that's what a lot of buyers look for. So who were some of the restaurants and accounts that really helped Napa in the New York market? Because it wasn't always a given in the 80s that Napa was going to be a big thing. Uh, were there certain restaurants that were really involved Terms of yeah, now, now you're asking to get me into a little bit of trouble here because <laughs> I mentioned a couple to you and I leave someone off for sure. My phone's going to ring on Monday morning. They say, Scott, how come you didn't mention mine? Oh, I think people like uh, like Danny Meyer and Roger DeGorn, mm -hmm. who was one of the uh, early Psalms in New York City, you know, all have high standards and recognition for great wine. Uh, but all, uh, oh, yeah, you know, you can certainly the top 50 Zagat uh, restaurants. Part of their uh, program is making sure that they have the type of wines that we've been talking about. But then, you know, you drill down, smaller restaurants, all types of restaurants, Asian restaurants, uh, Italian restaurants in particular, you know, they're looking for the interesting wines that are going to make their customers happy, that are of, of very high quality, that are of good value. And the other thing that I see that has really grown over the years, you go into uh, a better restaurant now and their wine by the glass program has really expanded because restaurateurs in talking to sellers like ourselves say, you know, I can buy this wine and I can, I can offer it at a reasonable price by the glass and I can expose more people to it. So I think as, uh, as a person with passion, a consumer uh, with passion about wine, should go in and at a table of four, you know, ask the, the psalm or the, the, the person on the floor who knows the most about wine to recommend different wines by the glass. And instead of buying four of the same wines, buy four different wines, pass them around. My wife loves to move the food around the table too. You know, we do that on a regular basis where we switch plates. But I think it's, uh, it's very important to do because there's an opportunity not to make a commitment for a whole bottle and to taste uh, multiple experiences, as well as uh, possibly tasting some dessert wines, some aperitifs, some champagne, and, and really get into it. And uh, because food is so much more enhanced when you put the right wine with it, as you well know. So 30 years ago, 82, what was a normal wine by the glass selection like at that time in terms of breadth and depth? Oh, you'd be, you know, if you, if you saw Chard, Cab, Merlot, Maybe you'd see a Chablis. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, you'd be lucky to stumble across a Crianza. 
But today, I mean, there are so many different wines that, uh, and I make it a point when we go out, not necessarily to always buy uh, the wines that we sell. I want to try, try the competition. You know, we have quite a few salespeople within our ranks that buy the competition because it's important. You don't want to develop that singular vision of just your portfolio because it's a it's a worldwide market. And I, I tell my people all all the time that it's important to understand you know, what the competition is doing so you can educate your palate. You know? Do you think the wine market has really come full circle? In other words, like a lot of it, as you said, kind of developed out of the liquor business. Do you feel like now it's, it's as it approaches artisanal spirits again, that it's kind of moved all the way around, like, you know, fine wine developed and now they're looking at fine spirits? I think fine wine will continue to develop because every time I think I know a little bit about wine, I realize how much I don't know. Mm -hmm. So the wine business, you know, P, uh, wine growers and producers are continuing to find better soil, better terroir to put the vine into to make a better wine. They're doing different things relative to pruning and getting the most out of the fruit without having the high alcohol levels. In terms of spirits, uh, it's exploding. I think it's in its infancy. And I think uh, we can look for uh, many more restaurant tours to offer uh, flights of scotches, flights of different spirits, flights of tequila, you know, uh, as, as it continues to expand. So to answer your question, both on the wine level, uh, I'm very, very fortunate to have entered it 37 years ago and, and had the life so far, and I plan on doing it for a long time to come. And spirits has just uh, got my energy going and my adrenaline going in terms of every single day I want to pop out of bed, you know, and present a new product to one of my buyers. Scott Gerber, Martin Scott Wines, thank you very much for sharing a little bit of insight over a lot of perspective, a lot of tasting, a long career. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.